0: And it is a great pleasure to welcome to the program Peggy Noonan, uh, who I have just discovered is another native of Brooklyn. Is that right?
1: That's right. Clinton Avenue in Brooklyn, now Brooklyn Heights.
0: But you didn't go to a school in Brooklyn. I went to New Utrecht, but you were out on Long Island by that time.
1: Yep. Massapequa, Long Island, Nassau County.
0: Uh, Your career, you're best known to the country for the columns that you write and the articles that you write uh, to be seen regularly in the Wall Street Journal and opinionjournal.com on the internet but also uh, the country knows you very well from the earlier phase of your career namely as a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan
1: That's right I was a speechwriter for President Reagan from 19 in the White House from 19, 1984 through 86 and then came back in uh, 88 and worked with him on his uh, Mm. farewell address.
0: And we're going to hear some of that farewell address this very night. We've got some clips that we've uh, pulled from the files. But I don't know whether Nancy Reagan would view you as a competitor, but it seems to me that you have a kind of a, a loving feeling towards Ronald Reagan.
1: Oh, I I feel like Gail Sayers on Brian Piccolo. Remember when Gail Sayers said, I love Brian Piccolo and I want you to love him too. Mm -hmm. I do feel that way about Ronald Reagan. I feel that he has been a little underappreciated and the real meaning of his life and the story of his life has not fully been told. And I wanted very much Mm -hmm. to explain who this fabulous man was.
0: A citizen of this community who was very well known as a writer Uh, by name, Gary Wills, not George Will, but Gary Wills, did a book about Ronald Reagan, I suppose shortly after his election, which was as uh, negative, as contemptuous, as ironically disdainful of the man as anything one might ever have read. Yet he did it with a high, uh, intricate, and uh, quite entertaining style that Gary Wills is capable of. Uh, But the whole point was, this is a put-up guy. He's nothing but an actor. A few big shots in Capitalist and otherwise in uh, California decided this was their puppet and they would organize him. And they sent him for speech lessons and for uh, programmatic training uh, and handling by media people specializing in politics. And lo and behold, they they produced... A president but what in the world do we make of it now the man knows nothing is interested in nothing tells a lot of lies based upon movies he's seen and he identifies with the characters in the movies and says these are stories from his own life oh yeah yo! what have <laughs> we uh, now sitting in the Oval Office said Gary Wills by the way he said it <laughs>
1: on sitting this in program this chair. sitting
0: in the chair you're in right but now I
1: can still feel the cynicism radiating off of yeah. it look that is a story what you just spilled out is a scenario by creative minds that come from the left that could never understand ronald reagan or see who he really was who had never understood conservatism as a political philosophy and who assume therefore that conservatives hold to the beliefs they hold to because they are stupid not because they're principled or serious
0: there was nothing more significant in the five or six character traits that wills attributed Reagan than stupidity.
1: I know, they all do, but that's, you know, to me that just speaks of the emptiness of the Mm -hmm. left when faced with a gigantic character like Reagan. I mean, the left has been so busy for the past 50 and 100 years raising up people who, when you look back in history, were little, small shells on the road. This Fellow was a big man and he was a conservative and he was principled and serious and he did it the hard way and he came from nowhere and it cost him something every day to be who he was. Milt, it took guts. This is one of the things I found out in talking to his family and friends. It took guts for Ronald Reagan to get up every day and be Ronald Reagan. It took guts to be constantly sailing against the wind which he was from the time he was a young man in Hollywood and decided that as Hollywood was going off on a leftist toot, he would he would become a conservative. But also, you might say, since he came from nowhere, since he came from less than just about any president of this century in terms of his family and, and who those people were, a
0: and father, I include
1: in that Mr. Clinton.
0: A father who was an alcoholic and uh, who um, uh, he, whom he, he brought to California once he had established as a movie actor, brought his father and mother, set his father to the job of sort of handling the fan mail.
1: Mm-hmm. It was a steady job. He also bought his father, he bought his parents the first house they had ever mm-hmm. owned, and his father who had been a binge drinker. Yeah. his uh, Ronald Reagan was born in 1911. His dad was a fellow named Jack Reagan, who was 29 years old. He was an Irish Catholic, he was uh, his people had been from tipperary in ireland and had been from the, come over for during the potato famine he is a shoe salesman but he's got he's a funny guy and a handsome guy and a nice guy in many ways but he is an alcoholic and a binge drinker and he could not support his family in a secure and consistent manner so there were problems there in the house on the other hand his mom nell wilson reagan was, as I call her in the book, she was a little tornado of goodness. She was a born-again Christian of the evangelical school. She felt the love of God. She filled the family air with it. Ronald Reagan breathed it in, and as Patty Reagan, Ronald Reagan's daughter, told me, it helped the fact that he had a, a... he had fully incorporated his mother's belief in God, and he had a serene belief, that led him to have the confidence to make the big and extraordinary decisions he made in his life like to go from nowhere to Hollywood.
0: I don't mean to haunt the present situation with the ghost, or at least the spirit of Gary Wills. no ghost. He's still happily, uh, fully vigorous in writing a book a year. Uh, but of Reagan's religion, or religiosity, Wills, as I remember, it says, essentially it's one a function of his kind of... Uh, uh, simple-mindedness but too it was much of it put on because it suited the occasion and obviously playing to the right you play to the evangelicals and so he sort of uh, expressed his doubts about evolution on that basis
1: not so fully untrue one of the things that i have come away from ronald reagan's friends and family feeling most strongly was the extent and depth and complete naturalness of religious belief mm. within him look if an atheist says an atheist will always look at somebody like reagan who believes like a peasant believes the way a simple person believes and they'll say that's because you're simple and stupid there are other of us who see belief like that and say oh there's a little spiritual genius going on there
0: sitting in this chair as i have for over 25 years uh, all sorts of people come by i may eventually yield to the publishers and. Do a book about my memories as a talk show host. It would be titled Adventures in the Talk Trade. Do it. Borrowing from Dylan Thomas's Adventures in the Skin Trade. One of the most memorable evenings. Both of the daughters have been here. Maureen was and Patty was. And Patty at the time, it was a long time ago, while they were still in the White House, the father and mother, uh, was rather estranged from the family. And some of that was enacted publicly, as I remember it. I find in your book... A conversation between you and Patty Davis, uh, in which she talks about some of that and says what really commended her father to her once again was uh, his looking at nature admiringly and talking about God having put it there. Yeah. And she was rather struck by the beauty and the simplicity and the deep, yes. honest feeling that lay behind that.
1: Patty Davis told me she said, "Peggy, the way when I was a kid, the way to get my father going." was to walk with him or ride with him and ask him questions about God. Yeah. And he would make connections between the nature around them and the nature of God. And she would say things like, what do you think Jesus was like? What do you think heaven is like? And they would have the longest, most wonderful talks. She is now a lady. She was a kid when they were in the White House. She's now in her 40s. And she has come full circle back to what she calls the magical nature of her, of her father, how he was at his most gifted as a parent.
0: I'm curious, I really don't even know the answer to this, what's happened in her life? When she was here, and it was a, a, quite a while ago, she was still sort of a hippie, uh, and a super feminist, and yeah. somewhat contemptuous of all that conservatism represented, and she did a novel which was really a rather yeah. nasty, Roman clay, which uh, had to do with her yeah. parents, I think. What's happened to her now?
1: Oh, I think she's in a very different place. She is still a beautiful young woman. She is very funnic funny, and she's very Mm -hmm. ironic. You know, she's someone who not only gets the joke, but wants you to know she gets the joke. She visits her father a lot. She sees her mother. One senses a great rapprochement has been going on and making them all very happy. She told me, she said, you know, it, it, Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, and and it is painful to see, but maybe my dad is here in part so that he will see us yes. all come together and get that. together without complaining about each other. You know, all families are hard, all families are, uh, are tough. I, I relate very much to Patty. I come from a family that's had its yeah. own tough moments and its own tough history. But she seems not so interested in politics as she used to be. She is a writer, and she makes uh, talks and speeches and appearances. I don't know if she's still trying to be uh, an actress, but she lives out in Los Angeles. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And
1: she seems like she has a good time, and she is a nice person.
0: I'm just free associating. One other thing that comes to mind a scene in your book. I think it's at the inaugural, or, or a party related to the inaugural of Ronald Reagan, and the new vice president is there surrounded by family and you get a sense as you observe it of a rich family or was it oh, the second yes. inaugural you're right
1: I mean, it's the 1984 inaugural it's the 1984 inaugural
0: yes. and you report your yes. sense that yeah. here's among the bushes a rich family life and how fulfilling that is and uh, how uh, warming that is but uh, reagan and his wife uh, don't really have family in the same sense that is loyal uh, filial response and reverberation.
1: It did not, family did not work out as easily and luckily and blessedly for Ronald and Mm. Nancy Reagan as it did for George and Barbara Bush. A friend of mine was there in 1984 at the private swearing-in of the president, which had to happen at a certain date as opposed to the public inauguration. He's there with President Reagan and his family and President Bush and his family. With the bushes he sees a big, rambunctious, loving, funny there family. They're there with each other. They push, they shove, they make jokes. They're there, they love each other. They have and problems grandchildren but they're, all over the yeah floors. They have problems, all families do, but it's there. The Reagans is a smaller group, mm-hmm. a shyer group, a more awkward group. And my friend who was there looked at the bushes and the Reagans and thought this man mr reagan is a genuinely great man and yet it is very sad for him that this part of life has not turned out so well and i think there were reasons for it and it's true i mean it didn't turn out Well, what were the reasons for it what do you make of that well i'll tell you boy i could go on for a long time on this i'll begin with this ronald reagan came from a family with a lot of tension and sadness and insecurity Mm -hmm. in it and he learned for he was born in 1911 he learned as kids then did to make his life fit into his family. He learned how to live with his parents. He learned how to fit in with them and fit in with his older brother, Moon. He learned ultimately how to support his family. All right, Nancy Reagan is born to an actress mom. Um, Her mom and her father, Kenneth Robbins, get divorced when Nancy is a little girl. Mom goes back on the stage. Nancy is brought up the first seven, eight years of her life by an aunt and uncle.
0: Much of it here in Chicago, I think.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, some of it, uh, uh, she wound up in Chicago. She started out uh, in Maryland yeah. when she was a little girl, but she wound up here with Dr. Loyal Davis, a fabulous Chicago figure. In the
0: first year I did this radio program, Dr. Oh. Loyal Davis, the famous neurosurgeon, did a memoir
1: and appeared on this program. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. fabulous. I wish I had known Loyal Davis. I came. On the scene afterwards, Nancy Reagan adores, to this day, Loyal Davis, and her eyes Mm -hmm. fill with tears when she talks about him. Anyway, Nancy had to fit in. Her mom eventually married this fabulous guy, Dr. Davis. Little Nancy, who changed her name to Davis in honor of Loyal Davis, little Nancy learned to fit in with her parents, with her mother, the actress, and her father, Uh, her stepfather, actually, a very uh, intense, professional man, somewhat distracted. All right ronald and nancy come from a certain amount of what we now call dysfunction although i've never really met a functional family have you but they both come from my own yeah all right fine so they both come from a certain amount of dysfunction they get married they go on and have children and i think they expected that their kids would fit into their lives even as they ron and nancy had fit into their parents right that's the first thing that doesn't happen second thing is it's a different generation you know patty reagan and and maureen and young Ron, they grew up in an era when kids were noticing their parents, and there were parenting magazines and parenting books on the coffee table. And they were seeing, my parents aren't coming through as much. So there's that. Another thing, poor Ronald Reagan, when he goes into politics, becomes controversial. Why? Because he is a conservative is that damaging to young patty when she's coming up of course she wants to be in show business she wants to be popular in los angeles they're all liberal out there and her father's kind of a monster to those people so she's in you know she was just in a horrible place all the reagan kids were they inherited their father's fame they inherited their father's resentment they didn't have in themselves the very special things that made him him and had they didn't have his particular ambitions so it was just a big mess.
0: There are so many directions in which a conversation might go. My aspiration always is to let the conversations on this program be sort of like what might happen at a good dinner party, Great. Uh, where you don't know just how things are going to develop. Uh, at dinner parties, they don't interrupt with commercials. <laughs> but we're about to do that. But just picking up on something you said, it, wasn't, it isn't part of my plan for this program. I don't have notes for this program. But uh, you suddenly touched upon something that, to me, is a kind of a mystery. Uh, and it's a mystery even in my own life. And it refers to the life of Ronald Reagan, maybe even to your life as well. How do liberals turn into conservatives? What mm. happens? Uh, I'm, I remember quite well, and I've often used it, the, uh, the line, it's either from Norman Podhoretz or Irving Kristol, uh, both of whom were once leftists, uh, and asked how they became conservatives, said, I got mugged on the way. Uh, rather, a neoconservative is... A former liberal who was mugged on the way to reality. Yeah. Uh, something happens. Uh, I think I yes. turned increasingly conservative, more or less at the same age that Ronald Reagan did. Though no, not that's not the same time in life, in history, but the same time in the, the separate chronologies of the two persons. Uh, and it doesn't happen to all people. I know some ancient left wingers who remain so reflexively and stupidly, to this very moment. Uh, the question i'm raising is what accounts for political orientation and ideology and for the shift from left to right as i think happens among among others sometimes rather intelligent or over-educated people i wish it happened more often i've taken too long to phrase the question but that's the question i put to you looking for a response right after we pause for these words and we return to peggy noonan well known for her Years as a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan and her very significant uh, speechwriter work for George Bush, uh, pair, uh, in his original election campaign, the Thousand Points of Light, is, uh, you do uh, you do acknowledge that, don't you? That's your phrase.
1: I worked with him on that speech, as we say in the speechwriting yes, dodge. Right. Bill Sapphire told me uh, that's how you say it. I worked with him on that speech,
0: uh-huh. and since then, of course, uh, has been a major, political and general social. Analytic commentator in the prints, uh, both in magazines and in books, very interesting and important books, and in her regular columns for the Wall Street Journal. The question I was putting to you a moment ago is uh, how do people turn, go through the transition that Ronald Reagan did, that I, a far less interesting or important person, did, apparently a transition that you did as well?
1: Yeah. You know, in a way it's it's hard to talk about this in in a way that will sound frank but i'm just going to tell you what i think is mm-hmm. true it seems to me all of the nice intelligent people start out as liberals yeah. do you know what i mean you just sort of start to understand yeah. liberalism is the right way to think it's a good way to think and so you think it in your real because happy it ha-
0: because it's based upon some sense of altruistic concern for the less fortunate
1: yes and and it's based on on rhetorical arguments that to which a nice person would feel sympathetic so you grow up, at, and you're sort of going along with that, and you've got an ideology without having asked for it. You're of the left, or you're a liberal. But at a certain point, maybe you're 25, and maybe you're 30, you look around, and you start to think, I can actually see a difference between the truth and what liberalism says, and i got to make a decision here. Am I going to follow liberalism and... and Keep changing my story and keep doing the dodge where you gotta liberal, do when you're a liberal, what? or I'm gonna try to follow the truth. And if the truth takes me someplace else away from liberalism, or God help me where over to your, the right, where in I'll be your in evolving
0: consciousness did liberalism violate the visible truth?
1: I was a very happy liberal until I was in college. Now, when that is mm-hmm. when this is the early 70s, I got out of college in 74. This is when most people started turning left. Indeed, I had been a happy liberal and a socialist, you know, a happy socialist as a teenager. Vietnam War comes along, and I'm one of the kids on the buses going down to Washington for the Vietnam mobilization against the war and all this stuff. I had days when I was for the war and days when I was against the war, but I wanted to be part of the anti-war movement. I'm going down to Washington. I'm on a bus. I'm listening to the speeches we're all making, and I got to tell you, for the first time, we're going down the Jersey Turnpike from Fairleigh Dickinson University down to Washington, D.C. for a big peace march, and I'm hearing people make speeches about America. And I'm hearing, they're not saying, I love the Vietnamese people and want to help them. They are condemning America. They are condemning my country, which, imperfect as it is, you know, it's full of achievable, it's rich with achievable promise, but it is not perfect. But it was founded on good ideas, and it stands for good stuff, even at its most imperfect. Well, I'm hearing them put down America, and... You know, as you remember the rhetoric of the day, we are all capitalist, lackey, uh, Nazi, whatever people. And I thought, well, you know, that ain't me, and that ain't my friends, and that's not my family. You know, I come from Irish Catholic liberal stock, and we're like that not because we hate America, but because we love it. All right, so this starts to slow me down. Suddenly I become not a part of the anti-war movement, but an observer of the anti-war movement. Then, I'm a kid, I've, been ha- I've had jobs since I was 14 years old, and I've been paying taxes since I was 14 years old, and I'm a waitress throughout my time in college, and I'm paying taxes that are rather significant, and I'm starting to think, who'd be better at spending this money, me or a government far off? So that makes me pause too, but it, is, it doesn't make me be a conservative. Then I get out of college, it's 1974, I'm lucky enough to go up to Boston to W-E-E-I, the CBS ONO radio station. I worked the overnight shift uh, writing the news from the ticker tape and, and we have a, we're all news all the time and I'm one of the many news writers. While I'm up there, a big story happens. It's called busing. A liberal judge had decided that Boston, which was inappropriately segregated, and indeed it was, it should not have been segregated, but in many ways it was academically segregated. White schools, black schools, and the public schools. All right, this is terrible. So what does he do about it? He decides we're going to bus kids from one neighborhood school to another. So I started watching busing in the streets, and Milt it upset and appalled me this liberal judge from wellesley massachusetts this rich guy was telling the working class people of boston that their five-year-old was going to get on a bus and take a 45 their frightened little five-year-old kid was going to get on a bus take a 40-minute trip to another school so that that kid could be a white kid in a black school at the same time a poor little frightened six-year-old black kid was going to be bussed across town to go to a white school we were going to play games with black and white children
0: a great it, movement against all of that it rose uh, from the streets of boston as I it remember.
1: did indeed and, and i'll tell you it was once again one of those times where i could see the media people around me the young mm-hmm. professionals white collar in their twenties we were lucky whatever our background we had gone through college and now we were producers and writers there and contempt people who for those talk. agitated
0: mothers.
1: And we and they were putting down and these white collar yeah. kids are putting down these beat up forty five year old working class housewives with five kids who were simply doing their best in America mm-hmm. and who simply who like in South Boston, big Irish Catholic neighborhood, you know, the biggest social thing that went on in South was the local schools. You had loyalty to Southie High. It meant a lot to you. These people didn't have a lot. It was being taken from them. So that a, I'm sorry, but I mean, it brought out my, the class consciousness I had learned at 14, you know, from from reading the great books of the left. You know, it, it kicked in when I was 24, but in a way opposite to the way the left meant it, made me a conservative.
0: A Swedish critic of Swedish leftism, and there's a great deal of it, thought off a wonderful line years ago. So, what's wrong with the socialist government is that they uh, engage in the altruistic sharing of the of the e- of the superego
1: <laughs> that's lovely I'm what glad to heck give you. That? it means i'm
0: glad to give you <laughs> altruistically i'm glad to give you my superego and let you live out what my conscience dictates
1: gotcha i understand what you're saying well we had uh, that's,
0: we that's a good deal of the intrinsic defect of liberalism.
1: Well, yes, one of the great defects is that there's, liberalism to me became white-collar people who feel they're superior to everybody yeah. else and so know that they ought to be telling everybody else how to live. What and to so do. the first liberal, yeah. when I was a kid, the first liberal thing I saw, when I really understood th- this is the thing I'm coming to oppose, I walked into, you know, the office of Governor Mike Dukakis in the nineteen seventies of he was great gubernatorial office was in boston He was the governor of massachusetts i was a young kid doing interviews for WEEI, and in his pristine lovely office with his pristine lovely self he sat at a desk and on the desk was only one thing and it was a large sign and it said thank you for not smoking i know that's small but i thought that's liberalism thank you (laughs) for not smoking Uh is the authentic voice of what i would think to come out Actually, looking back on it now, it doesn't seem to me that the voice of uh, Mike Dukakis, to me it is the authentic voice of Hillary Clinton. Thank you for not smoking, (laughs) you unpleasant, unneat, non-pristine person, you.
0: Which does remind me, of course, that uh, an earlier book of yours uh, was about Hillary Clinton. What's the exact title of it?
1: The exact title of that book, which is still in print, was The Case Against Hillary Clinton. Uh, written uh, very much for the people of New York. When Mrs. Clinton decided she was a New Yorker and a Yankee cat and was going yes. to come be our United States Senator, I got so mad I sat down and wrote this book. And it stopped her in her tracks, and she did not win the election.
0: Yes, I noticed that. <laughs> Somebody is uh, imitating her appearing on the floor of the Senate at times. Yes, I don't I'm doing know all too well. <laughs> uh, we must pause for some commercials, and then when we return back to Ronald Reagan and to other presidents you have known because in this book, though most of it is focused upon the career and the presidential achievements of Ronald Reagan, you do talk about his successor, uh, namely George Bush, and then his successor, the husband of that senator from New York.
1: The Arkansas folk.
0: Yeah. And then uh, uh, George W., Mm -hmm. who is there right now. And you've got a very interesting encounter with him in the Oval Office back in about June of this past year. year. We return to Peggy Noonan, drawing from, but hardly doing, full justice to her wonderful new book, When Character Was King, A Story of Ronald Reagan. It suddenly occurs to me I might not have given the full title before. When Character Was King, A Story of Ronald Reagan, is published by Viking, and we return right after this. And directly back to Peggy Noonan. And let us go back to uh, the, um, the focus of your book, namely Ronald Reagan, When Character Was King, A Story of Ronald Reagan. You deal with his earlier years, of course, with his career, but basically, inevitably, the focus is upon the presidency. We can't duplicate all the wonderful material in this book, but I really recommend it, and I've read, I think, every uh, biographical study of Ronald Reagan, including Mike Deaver's uh, two books, uh, and uh, all the others, Lou Cannon's, and so on, but this really gives me much more of a sense of the man than anything else I've read. Thank you. But, when we come right down to it, you are, after all, a political observer and a general social commentator, what really were the achievements of the Reagan presidency? Uh, If you were to write history a hundred years from now, what would you say about the Reagan presidency?
1: Oh, history a hundred years from now, I think we'll find him to be huge. I think history will look back at the past century, uh, at the twentieth century in American politics and say two biggies, Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan. And they both did very similar, but opposite things. FDR changed the way citizens viewed the government, what they expected from the government. So did Ronald Reagan, but in the opposite way. FDR got us more involved in the government and more into the idea of big government solving your problems. Ronald Reagan was the first man in the century to come, since Calvin Coolidge, just about in the 20th century, to come along and say, that is the wrong way. There's a certain amount of power in the world, and you're either going to give it to the government or give it to individuals. The balance is off in America. Individuals need back a lot more of their own power and autonomy, and that includes a lot more of their money. He cut taxes in America, he cut the tax, the top tax rates from the 70s down to the 30s. Huge, had huge implications in the United giving States. Giving tremendous
0: uh, largesse to the class that elected him and manipulated him, our friend Gary Wills would say.
1: Oh, to that's the rich. so. I know, and it's just, that's so dippy. What he did was cut taxes for everybody, and everybody had more money, and these dippy rich people are people who could take their money and invest it, make it available to everybody, make it into new businesses. Everything turns better when at a certain point you just stop taxes and allow people to get more of their money back. They do creative and interesting things with it. What happened in America with the money that the people had? With the money that various changes in the government gave them? Well, one of the things that happened was they invested in this exotic little place called Silicon Valley which was part of turning around the American economy in the next 20 years. Ronald Reagan changed the way Americans thought about government and changed the sort of sunny-eyed, oh, I love the government attitude, to a more skeptical, I love my freedom attitude. He turned around the American economy in about 15 different ways, but starting philosophically with the idea that each individual should have more and the government should have less. And for the first time in the 20th century, he became an American president stood forward and spoke with complete and startling candor about the Soviet Union, which was the great peace disturber of the past century in the world. Reagan wasn't going to play ball, he wanted them to know. He said very specifically to uh, Soviet Foreign Minister Dobrynin, who complained about Reagan's candor, Reagan said, I want you guys to understand that this White House is under new management. Reagan loved the truth, and he felt that if he talked the truth about and to the Soviet Union, he would bring it down. He thought a dictatorship could not withstand the truth and it's would tr- be undermined and destabilized by it. It's a trivial it.
0: matter, but, uh, but one remembers the occasion. He comes into office, his first secretary of state is Al Haig, and <laughs> Al Haig takes away Dobrynin. Dobrynin is then the Russian ambassador to the United States. He takes away his favorite parking spot at the state of Barford.
1: yeah ronald reagan, I once ronald reagan once had a great line about uh, al haig he said you know reagan was particularly after reagan was shot only a few months into his presidency and really showed the world and the american people yeah. who he was by the extraordinary way he handled it and that's the most reported part of the book i talked to everybody yeah. who was there but he After he was shot, he decided he wanted to send a very personal and very direct letter from himself to the leader, to Mr. Brezhnev of the Soviet Union, so he wrote out his letter, and he gave it to Al Haig, his secretary of state, and said, I want to send this to Mr. Brezhnev, and Haig said, oh, I don't want this, I don't want this, and Reagan said later, you know, it was the first time I understood that Al Haig didn't want me messing around in his foreign policy. Um, Reagan, of course, as the president, he let the State Department take a take we a remember, brush of the letter, but he em- sent it off.
0: Embarrassing moment, which may have really been the undoing of the remainder of Al Haig's career. When, on the day of the dreadful shooting in Washington, and Reagan's in the hospital, uh, Haig stands up, rather perspiring with anxiety or with confusion, and says before the cameras, uh, "I am in command."
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. That was sad. No, it was one of those things there was I'll tell you, Haig and Weinberger and all of those fellows were meeting in the White House and they wanted the world to understand the American president is in bed in a hospital, in fact he's unconscious at the moment. Uh, the vice president is on his way here, but the government is running. They did have to make that statement. Unfortunately the way the statement was made did not increase the world's sense of security, but in fact made them think, oh my gosh, is that guy having a breakdown? Because the poor guy was pumped up and he was literally shaking.
0: Reagan comes through in your book as intrinsically, deeply, profoundly, and inexplicably secure. Yes. That is to say, uh, he knows lots of people are angry at him, lots of people treat him with contempt and and revile him, just as our friend uh, up in Evanston did in his... Early volume, and as so many other press commentators did. Uh, uh, but he doesn't quite turn the other cheek, but he smiles and manages to shake him off. Shake him off.
1: He didn't, unlike Lyndon Johnson. You know, Michael Beschloss has a wonderful book. Michael where you can was read. here only two weeks ago. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, the torment of Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. You can just see as you read that book, he's thrashing around at night, furious with his enemies, furious that he's being criticized, furious at the fix history has put him in. Ronald Reagan was the exact opposite of Lyndon Johnson. He was arguably the most well-balanced man we've had in the presidency since, I don't know, since Harry Truman. It was another well-balanced guy who could do big serious things and then go have a drink with the boys and go to bed at night. He could sleep through the night. Reagan could too. There were a number of reasons for it. One is that Reagan could trust Reagan's own motives. Reagan trusted Reagan's brain. Reagan trusted what he wanted to do. He didn't think he was a genius, he didn't think he was always right, but he knew he was always trying to figure things out and do the right thing. When you know you're trying to do the right thing, then you can look at your critics not as people who are seeing into your wicked soul, you can see your critics as people who are unfortunately incorrect or don't have the information you Mm -hmm. have or don't fully understand things. And that is how Reagan tended to see them. He also Let's face it, he went into, he wanted to be an artist as a kid. He went to Hollywood, he became an actor, and he became a guy who was reviewed regularly. He liked to say, as he said to Bill Bennett, don't forget there's a big difference between the reviews and the box office. So don't listen to your critics too much, you know? The box office is the American people who will support you or not, and that matters. But critics, critics are a dime a dozen. Critics are people who can't create, who can only critique.
0: What was your... um Encounter with him in those White House years, like in human terms, um, he um, was he easy and open to your suggestions. Did you have a good time sitting around? And did he tell you Hollywood stories?
1: Et yeah, he didn't. You know, Reagan was funny. Reagan was. He had a great natural courtesy, mm-hmm. and he had a warmth. But I'll tell you, there was a certain uh, detached. Is the wrong word. Formality. But it, Gosh, it was a cool warmth or a Mm -hmm. formal warmth. He didn't sit around, loosen his tie, and tell a few with the boys. It wasn't his style. There's a funny thing about him, Mill, too, as a politician. Ronald Reagan was a man who wanted to get up and speak about what he believed and why he believed it and why you should follow him. He wanted to do that, and he wasn't shy to do it. But Ronald Reagan was shy with individuals on the campaign trail. He was not gregarious. He would never, you know how Bill Clinton would walk into a restaurant, shake hands with everybody? Ronald Reagan would never do that. He would never disturb anybody else's meal. He would never think anybody wanted him to disturb their meal. He wanted to go straight in and sit quietly at his table. He was not, he was full of a kind of love, but not a gregarious and I'll pat your back and give me a hug person. Uh, he didn't hug foreign leaders, you know? This Bush, W, is a hugger. Reagan was not. Mm um what was it like to work for reagan was so subtly nice that when i wrote a speech for him early on that i thought was fabulous and that was in fact a very bad piece of work rather than calling my boss and saying the new one needs help or xing out certain parts of the speech and writing in his new stuff he simply very kindly knocked out line after line, wrote in his own stuff, and then wrote three pages into the speech, this is all so nice, and thank you for it, but I think it's a little too long, and I had to shorten it. Now, he had taken out two-thirds of the speech, Uh. and I was so new, I thought, oh, he loved it. He just wanted it shorter. (laughs) I gotta tell you, it was a year before I realized, duh, Uh. it was a bad speech. He knew it. He would never tell you. And he would make sure, you know, with his little note, that you didn't feel badly about what you did. He knew you were trying. But uh, while I felt, while I admired him and really appreciated him, I cannot say that I felt close to him. Never? No, I just, I was crazy yeah. about him, but not close with him.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a big age difference between the two of you. How old were you at the Absolutely. time?
1: Absolutely. I was 33 years old, and he was a man in his 70s. Sure. By the way, you said, did he talk about Hollywood? It was a very funny thing about Ronald Reagan. I thought when I first got to know him that he'd, you know, that he'd have anecdotes. You know, like, well, as Ida Lupino once said, or mm-hmm. well, Olivia De Havilland was saying to me once, and he didn't talk about Hollywood per se. He didn't talk about being a movie star or acting. He didn't talk about Errol Flynn. What he talked about was the Hollywood Wars of the nineteen forties and fifties and his SAG presidency when he was Where president the of the, screen, tried Actors to take Guild.
0: Over the screen, screen Actors Guild.
1: They really did. And he, as as Sterling Hayden said, those guys ran into a one man battalion named Ronald Reagan who mm-hmm. stopped them dead in his tracks. He, he was did heroic work as the Screen of Actors Guild. While, yeah. It? And he tried to keep Washington politicians from coming yeah. in and holding hearings there. He knew what mischief they were up to.
0: I can't resist the great you know it, of course, the great Hollywood story about Ronald Reagan. Remember when somebody comes to Jack Warner and says, Rodney Reagan is going to announce that he's running for governor? Yeah. And Warner oh, says, no, I no, know. wait, that's not quite right. <laughs> no, no, no. no. J- Jimmy Stewart is running for governor and Rodney right. Reagan is best friend.
1: That's right. Jimmy Stewart for governor, Ronald Reagan for best friend. <laughs> but, you know, from those old fellows, those old pirates milk like Sam yeah. Goldwyn and Jack Warner... Ronald Reagan learned so much. I honestly think, and I say in the book, they should be given posthumously a Medal of Freedom, all uh-huh. those old pirates of Hollywood. They taught a young Screen Actors Guild president named Ronald Reagan how to negotiate, how to play, uh-huh. how to know it's not personal, how to faint, how to how to play your cards, how to pick your cards up, how to n- smoke out what the other yeah. guy's up to. All of these things Ronald Reagan learned from those old fabulous old pirates, and he used them in his political life for the next yeah, 40 years. That's what most
0: people have never understood, most who criticized him from the left, that there is not a gross discontinuity between his Hollywood life and his political life, rather his years in uh, uh, the struggles over the Screen Actors Guild oh, yes. and, and contracts and so on, uh, and uh, really union dealings, all of that in a way is preparation.
1: Absolutely. But,
0: public political art.
1: absolutely that's why everyone in his family and his kids his best friends they'll all say there was no disjuncture
2: yeah exactly.
0: or a
1: disjunction between the Hollywood Ronald Reagan and the political one One fed and one was like a river that flowed straight into the other
0: I'm not surprised to learn that we're very very late for some overdue commercials and we'll take care of those and then uh, we will go directly to uh, a quick update on the evening's news and then back to Peggy Noonan drawing from her wonderful new book, When Character Was King, a story of Ronald Reagan, Viking, the publishers, and first these words. Let us remember Ronald Reagan by listening to him for just a bit. Would you like to do that?
1: Good, let's.
0: Now, we've got a few clips here. One is, now this is at the very beginning of his administration, isn't it? Yes. Uh, this is the, uh, the the air traffic controller's problem. The date I have here is 81. Yes. Does that sound about right?
1: Yes, it was the summer of 81. It was just a few months after he was shot and he was faced, Ronald Reagan, with a great challenge. And it was the fact that about 15,000 air traffic controllers who controlled the airspace over Mm -hmm. the whole country, but also in effect in the whole world, and who were federal employees decided they were going to go out on strike if they did not get a 100% pay increase. One hundred percent? Yeah. They got a little ambitious there. The fact is they were underpaid and they deserved a pay increase. And Reagan came up with, I think, an 11% pay increase. Mm-hmm. He respected them. These are professionals who work under terrible pressure, who are very important, who have horrible hours, and who bring home ulcers. You know? So these sure. are these are guys who deserve a real good living and, and what they do is so important. But but. What? ronald reagan could not afford to give them a hundred percent pay increase and and you
0: couldn't strike against the federal government
1: it was against the law they were federal employees they had each of them when they took their jobs signed a pledge that they would not strike against the federal government it was against the law but they walked
3: out and he gets tough and here he is doing it let me read the solemn oath taken by each of these employees i am not participating in any strike against the government of the united states or any agency thereof It is for this reason that I must tell those who fail to report for duty this morning. They are in violation of the law. And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their and will be terminated.
0: He could be a tough guy
1: he could and i'll tell you this is early in his presidency and as we used to say on the left the whole world was watching Mm -hmm. this was a real challenge to a new american president who talked tough now was he going to be tough here's the inside story that was so hard on reagan it's easy to say well i will follow the law these guys are going to get canned or if not easy at least it's not the toughest thing in the world but ronald reagan as a conservative he had the support of the working men and women of america and many of them union members but he had the support of almost no formal unions almost no formal union leaders one of the very few unions that ever supported ronald reagan was the air traffic controllers union uh... run by a guy named bob polly and i think that's part of the reason the air traffic controllers sure. thought this guy you know he's not gonna let bad thing happen to us he's not gonna can us well ronald reagan gave them they all walked off the job about fourteen thousand of them i think Ronald Reagan gave him two days to cool off. And then he said, if you don't come back, you will be fired and you will never get your job back.
0: And that's essentially what he did.
1: That is exactly what he did. Two days passed, about 20% of the air traffic controllers, 25%, went back to work. They could tell. They looked at Reagan Mm -hmm. in his Oval Office address, which he had written upstairs in the White House in some anger. They looked at him and they thought, don't screw around with this man. So they went back to work and they kept their jobs. But two thirds or three fourths of the union, I think, uh, stayed out. They, every one of them, was fired. Well, everybody knew that air traffic was going to die in America now. But Reagan had worked for about ten days with Cap Weinberger, his Secretary of Defense, with Drew Lewis, his Secretary of the Treasury. They got workers to come in. There was a lot. There was some fat built into the bureaucracy. So they had the people who came back first of all. Then they had the fat in the bureaucracy. Then they, they had people who they had come in and had quickly changed. And within about a week, they had the whole system up and running again. The Air Traffic Controllers Union was stared down. They later disbanded as a union and totally fell apart. But as George Shultz, later Ronald Reagan, Secretary of State, said uh, in a comment that was so simply and startlingly true, he said, the biggest foreign policy decision Ronald Reagan ever made was the firing of the air traffic controllers because the whole world was watching? Hmm. The Soviet hmm. Union was watching, China was watching, and everybody thought, "This is a man. Yeah. This is not some Hollywood cream puff. This is a man. He's going to do the tough, hard thing. And We've so got to watch gets, this guy."
0: So when he gets tough with the Soviet Union, he has credibility.
1: He does. It was, it, but it was just natural to Reagan. Reagan, with his sense of right and wrong, Reagan was not calculating. I've got to show the Soviets I'm tough. I've got to show China. Reagan thought there's right and wrong here. They took these jobs swearing they would never strike. Mm-hmm. We were in negotiations. They are not allowed to walk out. It is against the law. If they do it, I will fire them because I am the president and I obey the law.
0: But on his foreign policy record, or on his record uh, in foreign and policy and security affairs, there are two things that bother lots of people. And I confess, even though I was becoming increasingly conservative during the Reagan years, that they bothered me then and they still bother me now. Go. One was Iran-Contra. Yes. I'm not going to get into that. It's just too complicated.
2: and It was a too, mess.
0: It's too multi-sided. But the other is Star Wars, so-called, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which some have said um, uh, was sort of a cagey, foxy grandpa operation. He knew that it wasn't real. It wasn't possible. But it was a way of scaring the hell out of the Soviets. And no they way. felt they had to match... All of that expenditure in research and in deployment, and that's what did them yeah. In,
1: that argument uh, presumes the Soviets are so dim witted in those days that they actually thought Ronald Reagan made okay. up a story called a missile defense shield. But, and they thought, Oh my gosh, he'll do it. But even my it didn't feeling exist. Then they was, weren't
0: stupid. But my feeling then was and I've done some uh, I've done some exploration in the realms of security policy in particular particularly nuclear arms policy yeah. and i've written on these matters somewhat at least at the journalistic level if not the scholarly level my feeling then was and it still is even as regards uh, george w bush's uh, plan for a renewal of that whole operation that it's unfeasible and it isn't uh, needed and it's vastly vastly uh, over uh, expensive and it's just a lousy investment you can't protect against terrorism nuclear or otherwise otherwise or nuclear I should say uh, by mounting uh, anything like a space defense or a strategic defense initiative and certainly in those days we couldn't have so what in the world was and he gave us the vision of um, this is the thing about him that most bothered me he gave us the vision of uh, sort of a dome over all the United States we would become absolutely invulnerable to any sort of nuclear missile attack that was a fantasy
1: he called it a space shield. It wasn't really a dome. You can't build a dome yeah. like that. Um, I disagree with you very much on this, Milt. No, just Good. completely, one hundred percent. Let's go. At it. I'm totally. All
3: right.
1: First of all, one of the most underreported stories of our time is that George W. Bush and the new leader of Russia, no longer the Soviet Union since mm-hmm. my guy came Putin. along, um, Mr. Putin and Mr. Bush are actually coming to total agreement on quote Star Wars, on some kind of strategic defense against missiles. And I think the Soviets and the United States are together going to be working on this. That's the first thing. Second thing, Israel already in effect has it. Israel already can shoot down missiles on the way in. Third thing, is it needed? Of course it's needed. We live in an age of terrorism. We live in an age where really bad, scary things that can happen. Star Wars or a space shield cannot stop a suitcase nuke from coming in, and it can't stop uh, uh, the spread of uh, biological or chemical weapons. However, if we can develop, and we ought to be trying to develop, a system whereby incoming missiles are knocked down or deterred uh, from where they're supposed to be, that is all to the good. We should not only have it, we should share it with the world. Putin believes Bush. Bush said, let us go ahead with this. We'll share it with you. Putin believes him. Putin knows, knows he's telling him the truth. Look. We live in a world where the big warheads and the big pieces of atomic death can be carried by missiles, and believe me, we're going to see it in our lifetimes, and we want to be protected against it. Look what we
0: saw on September 11th. Sure, it doesn't take missiles. It doesn't take nuclear missiles. uh, of the ICBM variety.
1: No, but you we don't do want to take the wrong lessons from September 11th. We don't want to say September 11th happened, it was conventional, quote-unquote, it was airplanes yeah. blowing up it was buildings. An unconventional and then anthrax, unconventional. Yeah. We don't want to take, look, the lesson we should take from September 11th is this is a dangerous world and we should commit as many resources as we can to making it less dangerous mm. for us and our friends. The lesson should not be Oh my gosh, it, it was conventional on September 11th, and it'll be conventional next time. It is a dangerous world full of unknowable and unimaginable things that can well, happen Well, I want to talk
0: wrong. about with you about the dangerous world we're in at the moment, about how the world changed on September 11th. We've got to catch up with the commercial schedule, and even before we stop for a batch of those, it is time to invite telephone calls. Yay. In about 10 or 12 minutes, we will be on to the phones, and so we're opening the lines right now. The number... Of course, 591-7200, 591-7200, 312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. And if you're listening to us tonight on the Internet, someplace else in the world, whether in Moscow or in Kuala Lumpur uh, or in uh, perhaps Islamabad, uh, by all means, if you want to communicate, do so. The easy way is via email, the email address extension 720 extension 720, as one word, at tribune.com, at T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591-7200. will be directly back after these messages. And we return to Peggy Noonan. Um, we'll be onto the phone shortly, the number 591-7200. A moment ago, all the lines were taken, but we scrupulously screen those calls, and now... There are one or two lines available again. If you've been trying to reach us, do try again, 591 7200. If you're listening at some greater distance and want to reach us via email to pose a question or comment to Peggy Noonan, you pose a comment, you give the comment, and then you say, don't you agree? That, <laughs> makes, it, that makes it a question. Uh, and if you want to do an email communication, the email address extension 720 at tribune.com. You've done a lot of writing uh, in the column uh, in. Wall Street Journal since September 11th. I have. A beautiful column um, uh, just most recently, uh, uh, the one in which you uh, talk about that priest uh, who found all the firemen rushing in to the World Trade Center asking him for Confession before they went in, yeah. And you suggest many of them knew they were never coming out.
1: This when I heard when I heard this story in New York, it almost made my hair stand up. And I called the priest in question to find out if it was true. His name is Father George Rutler, and he's at a church called St. Agnes. Um, when he heard when the first trade center was hit, he ran to the site. He got there as things were turning very dark indeed, and legions of firemen pulling on their coats and putting on their hats and grabbing their hoses were starting to run into the buildings. But he was in full priestly garb. He was in his collar. He told me he was in his dress Sunday shoes for some reason. They would see him, these firemen, and they would stop and they'd say, Father, give me your blessing. And then they'd say, Father, say a prayer with me. And then they'd say, Father, can you take my confession? Mm. So they started, Father Rutler, Father George, started to listen to these guys take their confession. I called them up and talked to them. I said, How could you? There were so many of them. He said, finally, I did a battlefield, uh, uh, oh, I forget the word, but it is a battlefield confession in which you say, essentially, talk to God now, take your sins to him. You are forgiven. Go in peace and make a full confession later on. And they made the sign of the cross and they ran into the building, one after another. I mean, there were just legions of them stopping, getting a prayer or confession, running in. I spoke to the to the priest about it, and I said, "Well, this tells me they knew what they were getting into. You don't go if you are a Catholic. You don't go to confession, <laughs> unless you're in some kind of not. If you are a Catholic, you should go to confession all the time. But I'm telling you, if you're a Catholic and a fireman, and you're taking confession before you run into a building, it's because you know you're in trouble. You know what's in there, and you know what the odds are. And so this this just struck me as." so moving and so profound and father Rutler said to me let me tell you what happened afterwards a few days later I was on a train I think he was going down to Princeton he got talking with a young guy a college kid and he told the college kid the boy what he'd seen and about the firemen and the blessings and the confession and how they ran into the burning buildings to save strangers and the kid listened and he said they must have been sick. And Father Rutler thought, oh, that is the modern world in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. That is that is the sound of the deconstructionist spirit. Yeah, that is the yeah. sound of nihilistic modernity.
0: That column of yours relates very directly to a column of a week or two before, whose, I don't have it in front of me, but it was titled something like, The Duke is Back.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. This was right after September 11th. In New York City, I saw the men and women, the grunts of my city, the physically tough, non-professional people dig us out, become our saviors, and become the kings and queens of our city. I was one of the people going downtown and waving them on and cheering for them and holding up the flag and saying, we love you, as they took big trucks down to ground zero to try to dig human beings out of the rubble. And I, I, I saw that standing with me were professors, and accountants and the white-collar class who had previously been the kings and queens of the city and the new kings and queens were firemen and cops and ems workers and we're just we love them so much and we're cheering them on the duke of reference
0: in that title is
1: it got me thinking that this has this is like the return of manhood in America. Manhood this is like exactly. the return of the, yeah. of the values and virtues of an old-fashioned kind of masculinity that was epitomized when you and I were but children, mm-hmm. Milt, by John Duke Wayne. So I wrote a piece called uh, "Welcome Back, Duke," yeah. saying that the spirit yeah. of John Wayne was running up those stairs.
0: Yeah. What's happening at this moment? What do you sense? I could ask you as I asked last night three. Experts on strategy, how are we waging the war, what do we do now, and so on. What do you sense about um, what, in a simple, cliched word, is called morale? What's happening in New York and elsewhere in the country? Oh,
1: that's so interesting. Uh, Somebody uh, somebody said it so well the other day. I don't know where the heck I heard this or saw it, but somebody said, gee, Americans have fallen in love with America again. That's good. Mm -hmm. We're going to win this thing. We're going to find Osama that's good but we gotta i hope stay sober and stay tough finding osama is not going to be enough it's going to be a great moment i can't wait till the moment someday in the next few weeks i'm going to be walking down the street it's going to be fulton street in brooklyn and somebody's going to walk out of a store where they sell radios and tvs and she's just going to say to nobody in particular they caught osama and we're going to stop dead in our tracks with happiness and we're going to cheer i'm telling you, it's going to be a great moment but it's got to continue after that. Osama is one of the great disturbers of the peace in our time. There are other terrible disturbers who have terrible weapons. And Bush, I think, well knows what a struggle is We've this been talking be.
0: about a, a, a man whom you take to be a great president, and you get no strong argument from me against that judgment. What about the current president? What's your estimate? George W? Of what's, what he's like and how he's um, managing in this terrible time of national crisis.
1: George W. has found the meaning of his presidency in this terrible crisis. George W. is good and solid. George W. has the God thing, if you will, that Ronald Reagan had. He's a prayer. He's a talker to God. Unlike Reagan, he begins every morning reading scripture. So he gets into the word starting out his day, and he means it, and he feels that the Lord has saved his life and changed his life. So this is all very sincere to him. He's no intellectual, but he's smart, and he's tough, and he's shrewd, and he knows how to read people and situations. He has been underestimated by his enemies, and like Reagan, he doesn't seem to care very much about that. He has been underestimated in a way by history, by the authoritative voice of Newsweek and Time magazine. My hunch, only a hunch, we're early in now. He's only been president, uh, what, eight or nine months, whatever. My hunch is that we're going to look back and see him as a kind of Harry Truman character. Small, peppery, underestimated, followed a charismatic figure, but was able to do the hard and hellish job of keeping the West and the world up and operating in the very tough days after World War II. What charismatic figure did he follow? He didn't follow. Mr. Clinton was like To me, he was an eight-year waste of time. I feel he wasted history's time. He was a movie star with, you know, pretty hair who walked into the White House. He was there for eight years. Now he's gone. The charismatic figure George W. Bush really followed was Ronald Reagan, a big man like FDR who changed reality and a hard act to follow as George Bush the Elder found out and as Clinton in his own way found out. Speaking
0: of the Clintons, did uh, uh, Clinton... uh... Did Bill Clinton offend you as much as his wife did? After all, you wrote a book against her. You have not yeah. written a book against him.
1: Yeah. I I feel I was, you know, as an American, a watcher of, Clinton's, of the Clintons and Clintonism, and not much of a critic until uh, roughly 1996. They'd been in the White House for about five years before I had simply had it. They are the first... Well, I'll tell you as president, Bill Clinton is very just different and distinguished in this. I have been alive for 51 years. I have watched American presidents really closely and with wide awake eyes since I was a little girl of 10. That's 40 years. Bill Clinton is the first American president we have ever had who by the end of his presidency I actually felt and still feel that he was not a patriot and he did not love his country. And I am still astonished that I can say that about an American president. I'm astonished to think it about him. Um, I. I where's, the, where,
0: where's the evidence for that? What do
1: you base that on? A number of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am one of those who thinks that he probably did allow the Chinese our potential foes to uh, To get their hands on American secrets and American technology in return for bags of money hauled into into the White House.
0: To run his second election campaign. Yes,
1: yes. Corrupt and disgusting. I base it also on his, you know, life is full of shenanigans. We are all sinners. We are all flawed and we're all a mess. That having been said, you don't tear a country through a thing like the Monica mess just because you have a big mm-hmm. ego and you ought to be in the White House and else ought to bow to, to you to and humiliate the country and embarrass yeah. the country's parents and let kids know things they shouldn't know and give them a sick view of our society and ourselves and what men and women do with each other. and I actually thought by then, this man is not a patriot. He actually doesn't love America. America's just the platform for his ambitions. Were you one of those parents? It's not the purpose of them.
0: Were you one of those parents? Your son is now 14, I think you told me. Yeah. Were you one of those parents who had to answer the plaintiff question from one's child, what's oral sex?
1: Yeah. All did, did that come up? We, yes, it did, particularly with this age. Cause he my was, son, you know, they're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14.
0: My son is older, and my grandson is much younger, so yeah. it didn't come up in my family.
1: Did you use the classic answer, oral sex, it's talking about sex, no, and you shouldn't to. do it? <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who
0: did it's that a great one. answer. <laughs> yeah, I thought
4: so.
0: Uh, um, it's time for us to pause for another quick round of messages and then directly to the phones. All right. 591-7200, 591-7200. Uh, for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. The new book by Peggy Noonan, from which we've been drawing in this conversation, is titled When Character Was King, A Story of Ronald Reagan. I think one learns a great deal about our former president from this uh, book, and it's, of course, superbly written in a very refreshing personal style. Uh, Viking uh, are the publishers, Five nine one seventy two hundred. and at last, on to the phones. You are first on the air. Good evening.
2: Thank you. Uh, when President Reagan was together with Gorbachev in Iceland, uh, they were talking about nuclear missile uh, disarmament and other things, and they were so close to agreement. At one point, as I understand, the matter got to a point of agreement, and suddenly Reagan deferred and declined to accept uh, another uh, issue that Gorbachev brought up, and the whole issue of disarmament was set aside. And uh, whatever thinking went into that uh, situation, I don't know, but uh, we certainly could have been closer than we are even today on uh, many of the issues that we're facing. And as far as uh, Putin's agreement with uh, President Bush about uh, nuclear defense issues, I am wondering what pressures are being placed upon Putin to uh, go into agreement as other countries are now regarding uh, allying with the United States to uh, be their allies, and some of them are reluctant to do so.
1: Well, I'll tell you, you bring up a lot of interesting points. One you, one of the things you're making me think of is that when Bush, when W. Bush, George W. Bush, met with Putin for the first time this past June, uh, they talked about uh, a strategic defense initiative and the different ways they saw that. They talked about many things in the world, but one of the things Bush told me as soon as he came back from Europe, and I put it in the book because I was lucky enough to get an interview, uh, with him. One of the things he told me was that Bush said to Putin, he said, Mr. President Putin, you got to realize that that in the great tensions to come and in the world to come, you are naturally the friend of the United States. And you you are challenged by the same things that we are challenged by, such as Islamic fundamentalism. This is going to be a problem for you. It's a problem for us. This was in June of this year, before September 11th. I think September 11th has had a sobering, really sobering effect on many world leaders throughout the country and the people behind them and i think that has something to do with putin's new openness with bush on the subject of uh, sdi as to the meeting you're discussing about uh, between mr reagan and mr gorbachev it is the great meeting at reykjavik it was near the end of uh, yes. of reagan's second term um, i think i would argue that it was one of reagan's greatest moments as president and i do argue this in the book Reagan and Gorbachev disagreed on SDI but decided together to put it aside and see if they could move forward on other other uh, ways to cut arms and limit arms they came to so many agreements at Reykjavik and at the end they were so happy and then Gorbachev pulled a fast one on Reagan and said that means of course that you can't go ahead with SDI and Reagan said no we put SDI aside and Gorbachev said i will give you the world but you must stop SDI Reagan said no, Gorbachev left disappointed, Reagan left somewhat heartbroken, his wife rubbed his back and said, just keep in there, honey, you're so close, you're so close. The Soviet Union essentially fell because the Soviet Union was forced to try to keep up with the American giving of resources to American defense and to the building of SDI. Gorbachev was not a stupid man. He was an intelligent man. He wanted to stop SDI because he knew it was real and had the potential to undercut the Soviet Union's ability to frighten the world. That is, undercut the Soviet Union's ability to be powerful in the world. So he was serious in going against it. Reagan was totally serious in holding on to it. And his holding on to it, I would argue, changed the world for the better.
2: I think we can agree sooner rather than later. So instead of putting these aside, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you.
0: A very interesting contribution. And let us go quickly to another caller on 591 7200. Hello, you're on the air.
5: Milt uh, it is a very interesting guest. My compliments to you on your selection. Thank you, sir. Uh, Ms. Noonan, you've had the uh, luxury of knowing some of our leaders on a first name basis, face to face basis, if you will. And most of us have only had uh, knowledge of them through the filter of the media Mm -hmm. Uh, the media frequently evaluates a candidate's ability to be a good president based on the media's definition of that candidate's intellect Uh, President Reagan was uh, crucified if you will as being of a mediocre intellect
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
5: by the media repeatedly. George W. Bush has suffered the same fate to a certain extent but yet Certainly, Reagan was one of our best presidents, and George W. Bush is showing signs that he may follow in them.
1: Boy, I agree with you, and i got to tell you, for one thing, we know where the media is in general as they look at presidents. We know where they're coming from. But there is something that is not ideological and not political that I think they forget, and I forget it for various reasons, and it is this. When you look at the history of your country, when you look at the various presidents, certainly of the past century, I think you've got to say to yourself, do you know what? It is not IQ that is the determinant of whether a president will be good or bad, effective <clears throat> or powerless. It is his character. I took part. Character trumps just about everything. It trumps intelligence. It trumps prettiness. It trumps odd Absolutely. talents. You know, character is at the heart of everything. I'll tell you When I really got thinking about this. The University of Texas at Austin, a place full of really smart people got together this series in 1995 um, in which they asked various writers like Doris Kearns Goodwin and Michael Beschloss and Stephen Ambrose, David McCullough, myself, they took us all and they asked us to concentrate on one president and concentrate only on his character. That's how I got going on the subject of Reagan and character. It simply hadn't quite occurred to me in this clear way that character was at the heart of everything he did and therefore at the heart of his success. But I did a speech Mm -hmm. at the University of Texas and they took my speech and Doris's and everybody else, put it in a big book, and since we all concluded that the key to each of our guys was his character, and, and that has to do with the, the things that were good in them and the things that were bad. Uh, they name the book characters all and to me it is a wonderful example of people taking a look at the characters of presidents. So we should look, when we
0: examine candidates we should worry more about,
1: about uh, whether less he's about a good IQ man and or more a good woman
0: and more about CQ yeah, character, their
1: the, characters yes. and their
5: values rather than their than their intellect.
1: Whether they have courage, whether they have the guts to put the country first exactly. and not their own mere interests mm-hmm. first whether they can make the hard choice, whether they are well-balanced and can roll with the punches that history gives them. These are all very important. Whether I I would even say whether they understand that there is good and evil in the world, and there is a God, and and we have responsibilities. All of these things count.
0: Something I've always loved in the realm of political quotation, uh, De Gaulle was occasionally attacked for being uh, rather grandiose, but not really very intelligent. Um, I didn't know that. Yes, he was, by some of the guys on Le Monde and so on. And uh, in one interview where somebody brought that up, dared to bring it up in the presence of his grandeur, he said, Je n'ai qu'un génie, c'est le génie de simplification. I have only one genius, the genius of simplification.
1: Ah, that's very Reagan-esque. Isn't it? i got to tell you, because yeah. he, was, he was a man who thought intellectuals ran around making things that were pretty clear, extremely complicated, and then mm-hmm. getting themselves and the country lost in the complications. Yeah. Uh, Reagan was so interesting on the subject of intellectuals. He thought they were like... Well, he thought you... so many of them were high IQ dimwits, you know, who just couldn't figure the most simple thing out. He felt that yeah. simplicity was at the heart of so much. He that thought weird. the Soviets were an evil empire. Those are, and so he said. those are stark and strong words, but they're also simple.
0: They were shocking when he said them.
1: Yeah, they it were. It was
0: so lacking in diplomacy.
1: Yes, wasn't it yeah. fabulous? Yeah. Natan Sharansky, the great refusenik mm-hmm. and freedom fighter, was in the Soviet gulag at the time. And he told me, and I put the interview on this book, he said, Peggy, we were there, we were in prison we would hear what Reagan had said, and they would, we would hear it because the guards would hear it through the radio, and the radio would tell the Russian people so the Russian people would turn against Reagan. Mm. And he said, but you must understand, in the gulag, we spread word of what we heard Reagan had said. We would empty toilets and tell the words through the toilets, and we would tap out through Morse code on the walls, the word of what Reagan said, and it thrilled us, and it gave us hope, because we Mm. knew he was telling the truth, and we knew that no totalitarian country like ours could withstand the force of the truth. And eventually, Sharansky got out of the gulag. Reagan got him out. Mm-hmm. Sharansky goes straight to the Reagan White House, and he sees Reagan, and he says, I want you to know what your words meant to us. But we knew the Soviet mm-hmm. Union would fall once you Sharansky started talking, about now a member
0: did. of the cabinet in Israel.
1: Absolutely. I mean, life is full of strange marvels.
0: Uh, here's an email from a listener down in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, I would like to know if... Ms. Noonan has read Dutch, Edmund Morris's controversial biography of Ronald Reagan. If so, what was her reaction to Mr. Morris's controversial use of a fictional character in her presidential biography? Also, was Mr. Morris sufficiently loyal to the facts as she knows them?
1: Interesting question. I did read Dutch, and I did uh, review it for the Wall Street Journal, and I wrote a hard review, a very Mm -hmm. critical and negative review of the book. I felt... Um, that Mr. Morris, you know, I had not been hoping for a positive or negative quote-unquote book on Ronald Reagan from Mr. Morris. In 14 years, I simply wanted to hear new things about him and understand him better. I wanted a first-rate historian telling me things about Ronald Reagan that he had learned in 14 years of research. Instead, I thought he had nothing new to say, nothing at all, and wasted history's time. (laughs) For 14 years, he had access to the Reagan White House. He ran all over it. He had access to everybody who worked there. He had access to people I couldn't get to because they died 14, 15 years later. So it, it was, to me, it was a very sad waste of time, and it was a failure of nerve. I felt that Edmund, a very intelligent man, was afraid to write a, quote, positive book about Reagan because the intelligentsia would attack him, but he was afraid to write a, quote, negative book about Reagan because then Reagan fans wouldn't buy it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think he just yes. wigged out and decided it was a book about Edmund.
3: And
0: somehow, <laughs> so... he, and somehow he handled that uh, dilemma by making it really a book about Edmund, inventing himself as, an, as a fictional Edmund Morris yeah. whose family was new and had a continuing connection with Dutch Reagan. Oh, it was wiggy. All of which was...
1: (laughs) It was just wiggy. (laughs) It was bad fiction. I don't mind fiction. You know, my feeling is historians ought to do what historians can do to tell you the truth. And and my feeling is no limits. But whatever you you do, it's got to work. I must tell you how we
0: handle it on this program. A good friend of mine in town is Joe Morris, uh, who's a leading lawyer. He has run for various kinds of political office. Uh, He's the president or something or other. Of the Republican uh, Party in Illinois, and he's a very bright fellow, uh, and um, I, we invited him to come on that same night, and we invented a fiction, went along with the fiction at the beginning of oh, Morris's dear. book, that my friend Joe Morris is a member of that same Morris family who are so involved in the early years of uh, Reagan's uh, uh, <laughs> career in Illinois. how that work? <laughs> I think Edmund Morris was a little <laughs> confounded by it. But,
1: well, good. But we,
0: we had let him in on the joke in the beginning. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. Quickly to another caller. Hello, you're on the air.
4: Uh, hi. <clears throat> um, one of the things that I'm concerned about. Uh, it, it sounds like your uh, your guest is pretty high on George W. Um, I voted for him. I've supported the Republicans since I could vote. Um, I believe in what uh, the Republican Party is stood for. However, I'm very concerned about this president. I'm very concerned about the situation he finds himself in. And I'm most concerned about the concept, first of all, of Homeland Security. It seems to me that we keep creating agencies, <clears throat> and I may really have a fear that the maybe not this president, maybe not uh, his second term, but uh, by the next president, we may really have the situation where we have the, the potential for the first U.S. dictator. Um, when you give... Um, such wide power and you start replicating at the state level, eventually somebody's going to come up with the idea that they can abuse it. And I really think that uh, while history might report him as a great president, the truth will be different because the state will be writing the history instead of historians.
1: Well, I'd like to hear yeah, your comment. Yeah, what you're saying is is very yeah. smart and I have friends who are starting to say the same thing, but, but believe me, if if homeland security, quote unquote, becomes the kind of uh, tool for a dictatorship that, that you are fearing, history in no way will call George W. Bush a great president. I mean, that would be a terrible thing. Well, I the state writes
4: the history; they certainly will.
1: Oh well, well, let's hope there will always be individuals like you and me who get to argue about things. But look, I am one of those who believes that every after, during every war in American history the American government has taken some actions that in retrospect we haven't liked. You can go back to the alien and sedition laws, you can go back to the internment of the Japanese in World War II. Um, The governments, American governments have at times of war taken certain actions that we have not liked, but after the wars have ended and wars eventually do end, after the wars have ended America has taken a look at where it's been and has become an even more free country after that. So I, I would not expect that to change this time but I think it is very good that all of the new sweeping powers that Mr. Bush and the Attorney General are said to have are, are sunsetted laws that are going to be looked at again. I do think that in a most extraordinary time with an enemy that is running around not just in places you're bombing like Afghanistan but places you're not bombing like Michigan that you're going to have to take some special actions to try to save lives, which is the desire here. And we all hope mistakes aren't made, but I bet mistakes will be made. It's the nature of war. It's a messy and ugly thing. Well, um, but but I I, I I am not there yet where you are and where some of my friends are that we should be worried about losing our our freedoms over this. I'm just not there yet.
4: Well, I guess I have two problems. The first is, is that... Um... My profession as a financial planner is to look at the economy from, from, a human, from an individual point of view and try to engineer a person's finances around it. One of the things yeah. that I see is that rather than being a negative thing, the, in the long run the, the attack in New York is going, to, is going to wind up to be one of the great um, pulling-together moments in, in U.S. history. The country would become fairly fragmented. Patriotism has been written out. The flag yeah. was, uh, was, was a cheap carpet. Um, and the other thing is that this creates uh, military spending um, without consumption because um, the fight against terrorism is never going to be mass troops uh, against mass troops. It's going to be one-on-one, it's going to be sneaky, and it's going to be dirty, and, frankly, it's not going to end. The the number of people, one of the things that uh, that's going to happen is that because one person is, is, is put upon um, there will be somebody that will come up behind Osama uh, bin Laden that will be uh, um, ten generations down.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, the Arabs, as, as as a culture, um, do not forget. Um, there's a you probably don't have time, but there's a, a a quick story about. My aunt was in Beirut in 1947 when the first Americans went back to build the oil pipeline. They had a young lady working for them in the American compound, <clears throat> and uh, this woman disappeared one day. Several weeks later, she was found with uh, her intended husband. They'd both been murdered, and they never were sure which family did it, but their families had been feuding for a thousand years over something that happened a thousand years ago. And that's the memories that the Arabs have. Yeah. And so this is not going to change.
1: Well, if you're saying you're not going to change that part of human nature, maybe you are right, but. Two points. One is miracles happen, and we should all be praying for them. The other is that, at the very least, let's get these killing weapons of mass destruction out of the hands of people who enjoy well, hating so much. Sir,
0: with that, we thank you for the call, and I'm sure we must run. a uh, last batch of commercials awaits us, and then we'll be back to the phones and the email. And when it comes to those programs that we put up on our audio archive, um, I can hereby assert that within a few days we will have this program up on the audio archive. They don't all get up there, only the ones that we think of a special and lasting significance. So, uh, if you want to hear it again, you can catch it on our audio archive. If you want to recommend it to someone who hasn't heard it, just direct them to wgnradio.com and then to extension 720, the link is easily available, and then you'll find choices for many things. Audio Archive will bring you lots of our recent programming as well as programming going way back into the 70s. Milt's File, something we've established more recently, will bring you things that I've culled from the internet uh, that are relevant mainly to the present war that we're engaged in, but also a few other things. One of the things you'll find there, put on just yesterday, is a recent column by Peggy Noonan. 591-7200 is our number, but I want to read you some emails that will interest you. Two in a row. The first, There are those of us who hear Ronald Reagan's name and immediately stand at attention, sort of like any Marine or ex-Marine might do upon hearing the Marine (laughs) hymn. Semper Fi. Needless to say, your program this evening has myself and others who have called me standing at attention often. We stand to honor the man, the office, and the essence of character, and that is just the half of it. The other half, as Yogi Berra might say, is the whole thing. (laughs) But now I want you to hear this. This is longer, but... Um, I think I should read all of it. Uh, please note the time stamp on this email. I'm not sure why. At this writing, I've counted, oh, I see, 21 misrepresentations and out and out lies told by Miss Noonan about her hero. I'm sorry that. Your producer couldn't take time to answer the telephone during any of the six or so times I've tried to call in. Uh, that's probably because all the lines were taken, sir. Mm. Uh, having been a speechwriter myself at one time in my 54 years, mm. it is clear that Ms. Noonan delights in audibly pleasuring herself while you sacrifice listeners. Reagan may have loved God and nature. He also loved James Watt, turning the society against itself and keeping the company of those who, like him, couldn't come up with the backbone to either go to war or to speak out against the blacklisting which went on in Hollywood as he was making his way up the ranks of the Screen Actors Guild. I served my country in Vietnam. I believe this is a nation where fairness is anything but the order of the day, and I am a liberal, which as you and Ms. Noonan both put it tonight, also makes me stupid. I'm sorry for both of you.
1: Oh, well... What's the proper response to that? I don't think I this don't gentleman is uh, stupid. I think he is confused, however. Um, there are so many issues brought up here. One is is this gentleman says he served in Vietnam. I'm sure he did. Ronald Reagan served in the armed forces, too, and Ronald Reagan wanted to go overseas, but Ronald Reagan wasn't allowed to go overseas because he couldn't see well. He didn't really see well enough to be in the Army. Uh, he was told by an Army doctor that if they sent him overseas, he'd accidentally kill a shoot an officer. And another doctor looked at him and said, yeah, and you'd miss. So he was uh, he was assigned to Fort Roach in Hollywood, where he did some very interesting work. Two huge things happened. One is that he changed. He was instrumental, and he was part of uh, changing how pilots are trained. Uh, the films that they see before they would fly over Japan, Reagan had something to do with that and, and made a good contribution. Uh, the other thing was that he was one of the first guys who took in the very first Army Corps uh, uh, films of the Holocaust, of the opening up of the death camps in Germany, and he was so moved by it, struck by it, and horrified by it, that he saved copies, because he thought when he was a kid, after World War I had been fought, there had been those who said, we only got into World War I because of American propaganda, and it was wrong to be in there and we were just subject to propaganda ronald reagan wanted proof for his kids that we didn't get into world war two just for propaganda uh, at any rate that just covers the war years on sag and on communists in hollywood you're wrong he was heroic he had plenty of backbone he defended those unfairly accused he was strict and and as direct as he possibly could have been with those uh, seeking to make communist mischief and he tried to keep washington out of it
0: our programs almost over but we've got something on cart that I want you to hear, I want our listeners to hear. This is the Farewell Address of Ronald Reagan. You had a hand in the writing of this
1: Yeah, I worked with him on it.
3: I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. And how stands the city on this winter night? More prosperous, more secure, and happier than it was eight years ago. But more than that, After 200 years, two centuries, she still stands strong and true on the Granite Ridge, and her glow is held steady no matter what storm. And she's still a beacon, still a magnet for all who must have freedom, for all the pilgrims from all the lost places who are hurtling through the darkness toward home. We've done our part, and as I walk off into the city streets, a final word to the men and women of the Reagan Revolution the men and women across America, who for eight years did the work that brought America back. My friends, we did it. We weren't just marking time. We made a difference. We made the city stronger. We made the city freer. And we left her in good hands. All in all, not bad. Not bad at all. And so, goodbye. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America.
0: And all in all, not a bad speech. You and Ronald Reagan oh. did well working together on oh, that right speech.
1: Fabulous. I was the luckiest woman in the world. I just met with him for four days and talked with him about what ought to be in that speech. It is so moving to hear it with that crackly sound mm. of old radio. It mm. really sounds like history now as opposed to something that happened recently.
0: And it's been a delight to have you here tonight uh, for the second time. Write, Thank m- you. Write you more bet. books and come back. Come. Come back more quickly.
1: This was wonderful. Thank you, Milton. When much.
0: Character Was King by Peggy Noonan and is published by Viking. A quick word about programs to come. We're off tomorrow night, a basketball game preempts us, and then we're going to deal with the Bernadine Dorn situation. Sean O'Shea, the lawyer who stirred up uh, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about yeah. her appointment at uh, the Northwestern Law School will be with us, as will Tom Garrity, an associate dean at the law school, and they'll debate the issue. That's This Thursday at nine until then, a cordial good night to all.